All right. All right, I'll just give the statement about the heat. You know, some of you are like, it's a little cold in here. We kind of did that on purpose. We're supposed to be a church that's connected to each other, so we want you to snuggle in close. This is going to improve your marriages. And if you're not married, maybe you're going to want to... Never mind, never mind, just kidding. We did come in this morning, and it was 54 degrees in this room, and so we cranked the heat up, and this is just a big room. It's taken a long time to get it heated up, so we apologize for the inconvenience. Thank you for being gracious with us in that. It's 2015, right? Like, where did 2014 go? It's like you close your eyes and blink, and it's gone. It's such a whirlwind where it's just like, boom, you know, and, and as a kid, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember, but as a kid, it's like, man, time goes so slow. You can't wait until you're a little bit older, but then you get old and you're like, man, time slow down. I wish time would slow down just a little bit because 2014 was here and now it's gone. And you start thinking about 2014, start thinking about the events from this past year. Thinking about all the amazing things that happened in 2014. Remember last February, first part of February? The best event from the entire year. The Seahawks won the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. Think back about 2014. Think about, think about the Sochi Olympics. How many of you could actually say the word Sochi before the Olympics in February, right? A few of you could. I still can't say it right. Me and my speaking sometimes. What about, what about the World Cup? The 2014 World Cup? I've never really been a big soccer fan. But I tell you, I was glued to the TV during the months of June and July when that, that World Cup was happening, trying to figure out how many saves is Tim Howard really going to get and all sorts of amazing things like this. 2014, remember the Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 that disappeared into nowhere and they still never found where it went? Think about, think about Ebola. Ebola surfaced springtime of 2014, and, and it blew up into this big, big, big thing. Think about this. 2014, how many of you did the ice bucket challenge? Yeah? A few of you did. I avoided it like a bad habit. I just, no way I'm gonna, am I going to get into that. Uh, ice bucket challenge, 2014. What about, what about Rob William, or, or, uh, Robin Williams? passing away, his suicide. I mean, all these things happened in 2014, and it's kind of like, wow, where did all that time go? Man, I remember when this happening. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but it's come and it's gone. And you see, if, if, if we do not live with intentionality, life passes us by. If we don't live with intentionality, we're going to look back at the years and be like, wow, that really it's been a year since the Seahawks won the last Super Bowl. It's really been a year. If we don't live with intentionality, life is going to pass us by. And we aren't going to pay any attention. And we start thinking about 2015. And we say, man, I want to see something different in 2015. I want to see some change in my life. I want to see some change in my family. See, the thing is, if we don't live intentionally, if we don't set some intentionality in our lives, we aren't going to see any difference in 2015. We aren't going to see any change. And so oftentimes what we do in this time of the year is we begin to make our resolutions. We set goals for the upcoming year. We set the vision for the upcoming year. For me, one of my goals for this year, and, and I tried to start us out today, is to not wear a plaid shirt. And so 
the plaid will be back next week probably, but trying to switch it up a little bit, you know, so I'm not so everybody expect it. But what are, what are your goals for this year? What are your resolutions? Somebody want to just be bold and just say, here's my resolution for 2015. Anybody? What, what's your resolution for this year? To lose weight. How many of you, you don't have to put your hand up, but there's probably a lot of us in here, myself included, who are saying, ah, yeah, I would love to lose some weight. Any other resolutions for this year? Anybody else have some goals that you're bold enough to say, here's what I want to do? Anybody? Anybody? What's yours? What was that? Get more connected with who? With, with your dog? That's good. That's good. Nate, what, what's your resolution? <laughs> Enough said. Time management. Time management. Kelly, what's yours? More open to trying new things. So anybody got something you'd like her to try? Cleaning your house or uh, just, just kidding. You see, I tend to be an optimist. And I am looking at 2015. And I am just believing and trusting that God is going to do amazing things in my life. I'm looking at 2015, and I just have the confidence that God is going to move, and God is going to work in my family, in my own life, and I believe that God is going to work and move in this church. I believe that God has, has amazing things in store for us. And so, with that being said, if you have a Bible, if you'd like to turn to Mark chapter 1, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. Today, we start a new series called Jesus the King, and we're going to take the next months. I don't know how many months it's going to take, three, four months. And we're going to look at the gospel of Mark. And, and today, our text today in Matthew chapter one is going to help us to really set the vision, to really set some, some resolutions for ourselves, some goals for ourselves, for us to see the change that God wants in 2015. And so, so with that, turn to Mark chapter one, and I'm going to just ask, uh, ask you to join me in prayer for, for, uh, for this time together. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be uh, with your people in this building today. And God, thank you so much for your word, that we can open up your word, that God, you speak directly to us through it. This isn't just some book that was written years and years ago that isn't really matter, but God, this is your word directly to us. So God, I pray that you would help us to lean in, that you would speak directly to us. That as we start thinking about what we want to see happen in 2015, when we start seeing what God you have in store for us in 2015, that we would lean in and that your word would be clear to us to, to help us see what it is you want to do this coming year. God, we pray for your presence with us. And we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So before we get into Mark chapter 1, I want to give you a little bit of background on the gospel of Mark, on the book of Mark. Mark was the first, there, there are four gospel accounts in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark was the first gospel account that was written. It was written between 40 and 65 uh, AD, and so it was the first gospel account that was written. In fact, the gospels of Matthew and Luke, they actually borrow parts of Mark's gospel and include in their books. And so Mark was the first one to be written. The author of the book of Mark is never clearly mentioned, is never clearly named. It never says, my name is Mark and I wrote this book. But 
historians and, and the, the early church fathers, there's a unanimous testimony that the author of this book was a guy by the name of John Mark. John Mark was a guy that we find in Acts chapter 12. We see that his house was a frequent meeting place for the early church in the book of Acts. We, we learn about John Mark, that he was the cousin of Barnabas, who was the Apostle Paul's missionary companion. And in fact, in fact, John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on a couple of their missionary journeys. We know that, that John Mark was a guy who was very close friends with the Apostle Peter. In fact, there's a church father by the name of Papias, and he wrote that Mark was the secretary or translator for Peter. Now, this is a big deal because Peter was one of the apostles. He would have spent the entire three years of Jesus' ministry alongside Jesus, living with Jesus, experiencing all the things that Jesus experienced. Peter would have been right there. And so, and so uh, we're going to see that, 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 that what Mark writes about oftentimes is from the viewpoint, the vantage point of Peter. In fact, Mark mentions Peter more than any other gospel in his book. And so each of the things that happens as you read is kind of like nothing happens without Peter being present. And so this is the gospel of Mark, but it also could be known as the gospel according to Peter. And so the question is, well, well what's the purpose of the book? Why, why did Mark decide to write this book about, about Jesus? What's the, what's the big deal? And Mark wastes no time in answering that question. He says in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This word gospel comes from two Greek words. Uh, that has a literal, literal translation, a literal, literal meaning as being news that brings joy. And so gospel was news that, Brent, that brings joy. It was, it was meant as, as, as history-making, life-shaping news, not just the ordinary, run-of-the-mill, everyday kind of news. A gospel was a news that was life-changing. An example of this would be, if there was a king and he led his army into battle, he led his army into battle to, to free his people from oppression, to free them from slavery. If, if they won the battle, that king would send a messenger, sometimes called a herald, sometimes called an evangelist. And they would send this messenger into the cities with this gospel, with this good news. They would say, hey, 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 people in the cities, we have fought for you. We have fought for you, and we've won. You are no longer slaves. You are free. This is the type of, of message of what a gospel is. It is good news that, that changes everything. A gospel announcement is something that was done for you that changes your status forever. And so Marcus is, is not beating around the bush at all. He's saying this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that we've been waiting for ever since sin first entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. Mark is writing not about a king, he's writing about the king. So Mark's gospel is not about the life of Jesus. It's all about the good news but the good news of who Jesus is. It's about the good news of why Jesus came. And it's about the good news of Jesus dying in our place. 
And so as we study this book over the next couple of months, we're going to see that the book of Mark is, is, is broken up into two divisions. The first division is, is chapters 1 through 8, and that really details, uh, that t- details who Jesus is. And the second division, uh, chapters 9 through 16, details why Jesus came. So let's jump right in. Uh, Mark chapter 1, and we'll look at verses, starting in verse 2. And it says this, As it is written... In Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt, probably picked up at Old Navy, around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now this John that Mark is writing about, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. In verses 2 and 3, Mark quotes two different prophets. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. He quotes the prophet Micah in describing that John was the forerunner to the Christ. John was the forerunner to the Messiah. John was the one who was going to prepare the way for Jesus to come. John was kind of like the fullback, running up to block for the running back to come in behind. For what, about, for what was about to happen. Now John's ministry, it took place in the wilderness, it, near the Jordan, in the Jordan River. Now this was about 15 miles from the city of Jerusalem, which was the religious center of the day. And so historians estimate that during the time of John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, that there was approximately 300,000 people who came out to hear John's message and to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. John's message in the wilderness was very clear and simple. He warned of impending judgment. He spoke out about sin. He named specific sins. He named specific individuals and their specific sins. He called for social justice. He called for repentance. This was a message of John that people flocked to come and hear. And the response is when the people heard the message, they were convicted over their sin. And the people formed long lines to be baptized as a sign that they are repenting of their sins. That they are turning away from their sin and turning towards God. This was such a fitting message that John was preaching about sin, about judgment. This is a fitting message both in his day as well in our day. You know, today, the gospel has been so easily manipulated. The gospel gets so easily manipulated. At best, it's manipulated into this easy believism. And at worst, our gospel gets manipulated into health and wellness gospel and and prosperity type of things. But you see, people become awakened to the facts when there is a message on sin and judgment. When people become awakened to that fact... They become eager listeners to the good news about the Savior. 
The good news that there is forgiveness. The good news that there is salvation available through the Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about this idea of sin. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who mourn over their sinfulness. Because they will see their need for grace. They will see their need for a savior. And then once they see their sin for who it really is, they will turn to Jesus. They will turn to the savior to receive forgiveness and be blessed. So in 2015, we start talking about what we want to see happen in 2015. I'd encourage you, resolve to repent of your sins. Resolve to turn from your sin. And now sin is not a fun topic. It doesn't make us feel good. We don't walk out feeling good about having sin. And so this is why we're saying in 2015, let's just repent and turn from our sin. Some of you, I know, I know this is what happens is, is you have this sin and you're kind of like, yeah, well, I know it's wrong, but you know, it's really not that big of a deal. You know, maybe, maybe it's a pornography problem. Maybe, maybe it's how you treat your spouse. Maybe, maybe it's how you cheat on your taxes. Maybe it's how you cheat on your, your time at work. Whatever it is, we have these things and we're like, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. It's really, it's just a small thing. It's not that big of a deal. Sin is sin. It's all a big deal. It's all a violation of what God has for us. So maybe for us, maybe your resolution this year is to repent and turn from your sin. What happens is is we have this secret sin. And we think, you know, if I can just keep it secret, you know, nobody knows about it. And, you know, it's all right. It's not that big of a deal. But you know, we want to know where freedom really comes from. See, there's this idea of confession. About, about confessing our sin. Being open about our struggles. And I tell you, you want to know where freedom is really found? It's found in confession. Freedom is found when we don't have that burden. When we're not trying to protect ourselves. When we're not trying to, to, to save face. When we just say, hey, this is who I am. This is where I'm struggling. There is a freedom that comes in that. Part of that becomes from being a body of Christ. It's because when we look and we see one of our brothers and sisters struggling, we rally around them and say, man, you're not alone. You don't have to fight this battle on your own. You don't have to wage this war in your mind and in your heart by yourself. Let us walk alongside you. You want to experience freedom? You want to experience freedom in 2015? Repent. Confess. Let it come out in the open and you experience freedom like you've never experienced before. So the first part of John's message was about baptism for the forgiveness of sin. This covers law. This covers sin. This covers uh, repentance for forgiveness. But there's a second part to John's message that speaks of a superior, an ultimate baptism. One that's primarily about grace. Mark says in verses 7 and 8, he says, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
John is saying, hey, that drenching of water that you just experienced in, in, in baptism in the Jordan River, that is only external. That is just an external washing. But he says, there is one who is coming who will drench with the Holy Spirit. And that is internal. That changes you from the inside out. That cleans you from the inside out. This, this drenching with the Holy Spirit, it happens at the moment of our salvation. It happens at the moment when we surrender our lives to Jesus and we become a Christian. Immediately, we are filled with the Spirit or baptized, in this case, with the Spirit. So this is, this is the, the, the message that John is preaching to the people. Repent and turn from your sin. Be baptized as a sign of your repentance. And then he says, but there's one who is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That is a much greater baptism. So Mark introduces us to the forerunner of John the Baptist and reveals John's message. And now Mark's going to introduce us to Jesus. Verses 9, and, 9 through 11. Mark writes, And those days Jesus came down from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Let's talk about this for a second. Why, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? I mean, this is a good question. This is a deep question. In fact, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, John asked this very question. John asked this very question in, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. John says, John, or Matthew writes, John would have prevented him from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. You see, because Jesus was without sin, because Jesus was sinless, he had no need for a repentance for, from sin. But in his baptism, what Jesus is doing is he associates himself with sinners. In his baptism, he places himself among the guilty, not for his own salvation, but for ours. In his baptism, he, 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 uh, he is baptized not for his own guilt, but for our guilt. Not, not because he feared the wrath to come, but because he came to save us from the wrath to come. See, Jesus' baptism meant that the cross was possible. And Jesus' baptism served as an example for us to follow. And what happens after this baptism is, is truly remarkable. It says in verse 10, that heaven torn open. Jesus is baptized and it says heaven torn open. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah prayed to God in Isaiah 64 verse 1. And he said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And that the mountains might quake at your presence. You think about this. How many of us have prayed a prayer just like that? Prayed a prayer on God, God, would you just come down now, would you just come down and fix this mess? Would you just come down and make things right? God, I've got these hurts. I've got this problem. I've got all these things happening. God, would you just come now and just fix the problems and make things right? Well, here, heaven is torn open. 
Heaven is breaking loose, and God's voice and the Holy Spirit pour out to show that Jesus has come from heaven. Heaven has torn open, and God is with us through Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know what your 2014 was like. I don't know what you're going to have to experience and what you're going to have to go through in 2015, but we can take comfort. We can take comfort that heaven was torn open, that Jesus has come from heaven. God is not aloof. God is not absent. God is not far from us. God is not distant. God is not far from us. Jesus is here. Heaven has torn open. God has come to be with us, to to comfort us, to be with us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer. And this is what Mark's saying. Heaven has torn open and has come down to be with us now. Now, again, Mark is just a little bit different. As we read through the gospel of Mark, we're going to see, you know, he's just so fast-paced. Everything is just boom, 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 boom. And so here we see heaven torn open. We see Jesus being baptized. We're like, this is a moment of celebration. I mean, this is exciting. Heaven has torn open. Jesus is with us now. This is exciting. We should throw a party. We should celebrate. We should feel really good about ourselves. But while God is pleased in Jesus, Satan is angry. Satan is upset. So verse 12 goes right into a temptation. Verse 12 and 13 says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You see that word, immediately? That's one of those words that should be underlined and circled in your Bible. Immediately after the baptism, after the time of of rejoicing, a time that should have been a time of excitement, immediately after being baptized, Jesus is led out into the wilderness to be tempted. The wilderness, the temptation, the trials, these aren't just detours in Jesus' life. This is life itself. This is the battlefield. We can't avoid it. Sometimes we think, you know, I wish we could just avoid all hardships. I wish we could avoid all difficulty. I wish we could avoid all temptation. Temptation is not a detour to avoid. It is a battlefield of life. Life is fought in the temptation, in the difficulties. Reminds me, reminds me of a story in, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the earth, and God speaks the world into being. Humanity is created, and, 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 and humans are, our history is launched. And what happens exactly after that? After Genesis chapter 2, what happens in Genesis chapter 3? What comes next? Immediately. Satan tempts the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And now, here in Mark, it's kind of the same thing. You've got the entire Trinity present at Jesus' baptism. History is being altered in, in amazing ways. And here, Jesus, just like Adam, is experiencing this amazing relationship with God. The Trinity is present. God is saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately, they are dealing with with the temptations of Jesus, uh, temptations of Satan. Temptations, let's get that right. See, Mark deals very straightforward with Satan. Satan is, is a reality. Satan's not a myth. Satan's not just some, some, some foreign 
thing, the Bible is clear. This world is full of evil forces. There are forces that are complex and intelligent that we are battling with. And Satan is the chief of these forces. And his, his constant desire is to tempt us to take the easy route, to tempt us not to trust in God. In the garden, it was that same temptation. It, the, the, God's command to Adam and Eve was clear. Do not eat the fruit of this tree. Everything else in the garden is for yours, for your pleasure. But this one tree, do not eat. Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve was to get them to doubt God. Was to get them to to doubt that God truly cared. To wonder what God was truly keeping away from them. And of course, we know Adam and Eve, they failed this test. And the entire human race has been failing this test ever since that day. And it's the same temptation in, the, in, in, in Mark chapter 1 at the temptation of Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us specifically what the temptation is. Matthew does in Matthew chapter 4. But basically, the temptation came down to Satan offering Jesus to take an easier way. Trying to get Jesus to doubt God's perfect plan. And Jesus passed the test and obeyed God's plan for his life, which involved death on the cross. Now, you and I, it's easy for us to look at Adam and Eve and be like, man, idiots. Why did you listen to Satan? You guys are dumb. You know, there's no way I would do that. Yet, truthfully, we still believe Satan's same lies. We still believe the same temptations that he puts in our own hearts. Satan tempts us all the time to doubt God. We, we are afraid of really trusting God with every part of our life. I mean, we start talking about setting direction and, and, and resolutions and goals for 2015. You know, maybe for you, maybe for you, your goal needs to be that you will no longer believe the lies, the lies that Satan is pouring into your life. You're no longer going to believe the lies that you can't trust God, that you can't really put all your faith in him. I mean, God has given us his word. God has given us his word and said, this is how you are supposed to live. Don't let Satan lie to you and begin to get you to begin to not trust God. I mean, God's word tells us as husbands, for example, it says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ didn't rule over the church like a dictator. Christ sacrificially loved the church and he offered up his own life for the church. God's word tells you as wives, to honor your husbands, to show them respect. Now, I know sometimes marriage relationship can be difficult. And uh, some of you, your spouses, can be hard to, to, to love them the way you're supposed to. But listen, will you trust? Will you fully trust what God says to you? That you are supposed to live in this way, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how your spouse responds? Don't let Satan lie to you and say, yeah, yeah, you don't have to sacrifice for yourself for your wife because she nags you to death. She nags you like a dog trying to lick the peanut butter out of a peanut butter jar. You don't have to love your wife like that because that wife, you know, she's the problem. Or, or you women, you know, don't let Satan lie to you and say, you don't have to respect and honor your husband because he's so selfish, because he doesn't listen, because he doesn't love you. He doesn't respect you the way that he ought to do. 
These are the lies that Satan puts in our minds. And really what these things become is we don't really put our full faith in God. We don't trust God enough that we are going to do what God tells us to do. We aren't called to do our part only if our spouse does their part. We are called to obedience regardless of our circumstances. God's word would say to us today, resolve this year to trust God with every part of your life. Don't buy the lie. Do not be afraid to trust God. Trust God in every part of your life. Trust God in your marriage. Trust God with your money. Trust God with your doubts. Trust God with your, with, your, with your questions. Just put your full faith in him because he is trustworthy. He is completely trustworthy. Again, Mark is, is fascinating because in, 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 in what the other gospel writers spend paragraphs writing, Mark gives us two verses about the temptation of Jesus. And then Mark moves on. He moves on in verse 14. He says that John the Baptist was arrested. And then John moves straight into uh, the beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry. And we can assume, we can presume that Jesus' first sermon would have been a little bit longer. But, but Mark summarize it, summarizes this message into 17 words. This is what it says in verse 14. He says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, Jesus didn't come just with good advice. Jesus didn't come with a political agenda. Jesus very clearly announces why he came. To bring the gospel of God, the good news of God. It says, says in this, this text, in this message, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. This isn't like a clock time, like, like 3 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon. What this means is in this moment, the time is fulfilled. In this moment, this is significant. This is it. This is the time. This is like, this is like when your wife's pregnant and, and she's, she starts going to labor and she looks at you and says, it's time. It's time. It's not a set time on the clock. It's, it's now. This is happening. This is really happening now. The baby's coming. Men, when your wife says that to you, it's time. Don't dilly-dally. It is time. We had one of our kids, when my wife was pregnant, she, she, her water broke, and she says, it's time. And I'm like, okay, well, let me. She's like, no, we got to go now, or the baby's going to come out right here in our basement. And I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go. I get it. It's time. This is kind of what Jesus is saying. It's time. It's now. This is it. The time is fulfilled. Jesus' message here is going to be this main message throughout the entire book of Mark. That the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. His message is so clear. He says, repent and believe the good news. Repent, this means to reverse or to turn away from something. Specifically, when you read it in the Bible, repent means turning away from things that Jesus hates and turning to the things that Jesus loves. Jesus hates sin. So we're supposed to turn away from our sin and turn to believe the good news. And what is that good news? Remember, we talked about this earlier. We described it earlier. 
This gospel, this good news is something that is done for you in history that changes your status forever. The good news is something that was done in history that changes your status forever. The good news, the good news is Jesus. The good news is that Jesus is submitting himself to God's plan. The good news is that Jesus is trusting God. He's going to follow through with the plan that God has put in store for Jesus. The good news that Jesus is trusting God's plan and he's living the sinless life that you and I were supposed to live. The good news is that Jesus is trusting God's plan and, and, and is going to die the death on the cross that you and I deserve, that you and I should have had to suffer. The good news is that Jesus is trusting God's plan and he's coming back to life to conquer death, to conquer hell, to conquer Satan. The good news is that God connects with us not on the basis of what we've done or not on the basis of what we haven't done. But the good news is that God connects with us on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished for each and every one of us on the cross. So when Jesus says this, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is such a marvelous statement that he's saying. At Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that when God created us, when God created the world, that, that we were created to live in a world in which all relationships, both psychologically and socially, they were perfect. Because God was king. But Genesis chapter 3 tells the next part of the story. And that teaches us that Adam and Eve chose to be their own kings. And from that day forward, all of us have chosen to be our own kings. We've become self-centered and self-focused. We become obsessed with ourselves. This is why our minds run through thoughts like this. We start thinking things like, well, how am I feeling? How are people treating me? Am I proving myself? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I being treated fairly? I mean, we become to the point where we want to make ourselves the kings, and we become so self-focused. I mean, why, why do you think we have wars? Why do you think we have wars? Because we're so self-focused focused? Why, why do you think we have class struggle? Why do you think we have racism? Why do you think there are family breakdowns? Why are relationships constantly imploding? It's all because of the darkness of self-centeredness. It's all because of the darkness of self-centeredness. Because we want to make ourselves the, 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 the king. We want to make ourselves on top, make it all about us. And yet, with all this happening around us, with all the brokenness because of our selfishness, we all long for a day when everything is made right. We all long for a day when everything is made right, when things are made okay. This is why we love fairy tales. This is why we love happily ever afters. This is why there are chick flicks, right? Serendipity. 10 Things I love, Hate About You. All these movies are made because everything makes right in the end. Everything fits in and, and the relationships are, are restored. We want things to be right. And this is what is happening with Jesus. Jesus is beginning to revert things back to the way that God designed. Where, where God is king. Where, where, where God is the priority. Where we are not our priority. Where we become not consumed with ourselves. We become consumed with God. 
Jesus is beginning to revert things back to the way that God established them. Jesus is making all things right. We won't experience it fully until we get to heaven, but Jesus has begun that process right here and right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm reminded of a line from the Lord of the Rings. J.R.L. Tolkien uh, writes, in this, write, writes in the Lord of the Rings, he writes, The hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. You see, when we come under the healing hands of Jesus, under the kingship of God, things begin to heal. And we begin to experience a glimpse of exactly what God has prepared for us. We begin to experience relationships beginning to form the way that they were supposed to be. We begin to experience exactly what God prepared for us all the way in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so what happens is Jesus is preaching this message and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm beginning to restore things to the way they were supposed to be. Repent and believe the good news. And so Jesus is preaching and all of a sudden there's this need to respond. There's a call to action. It's not just this message to put it out there, but there's something that we have to do in response to it. So Mark says in verses 16 through 20, He says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, being Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with his hired servants, and he followed him. See, Jesus immediately calls people to follow him. You notice that it is Jesus who calls them to follow him. This is, this is different in those days. In those days, when you had a teacher, it would be the pupils. It would be the, the students who would say, man, can I follow you? I want to learn from you. But here, it's backwards to what they knew. Jesus is calling them to follow me. And it's the same thing for us. We don't choose to follow Jesus. Jesus calls us. He calls us into a relationship with him. He makes the first step and calls us into a relationship. Are you in a relationship with Jesus? Is Jesus calling to you today to say, would you surrender and follow me? Would you follow me? And he tells these disciples, he says, hey, disciples, you leave your career as a fisherman. Disciples, you leave your father Zebedee and and you leave your family. You leave those things aside. Not that these things are necessarily wrong in themselves. But what Jesus is saying is he says, I want priority over your career. He's saying, I want priority over your family. I want priority over your hobbies. I want priority over your social status and your popularity. He says, I want the priority in your life. I want to be the top priority. Whatever it is that we pursue, that's Jesus' same message to us today. He's saying, I want to be your top priority. Again, we aren't talking about this easy believism. You know, just pray this prayer and that's all you have to do. Jesus is saying, follow me. 
Jesus is saying, set aside whatever it is that you've been pursuing and make me your top priority. Make me number one. Make me most important. So we start talking about 2015, about wanting and trusting that God is going to move mightily in our lives and move mightily in our church. I think Jesus is saying the same thing to us. Resolve this year to make Jesus your top priority. He would say, repent and believe the good news that Jesus has died for your sins and for your salvation and for your freedom. Jesus would tell us that the kingdom of God is at hand. And because of this, because of what Jesus has done for you, because of Jesus, heaven being torn open and Jesus coming down to be with us, because of Jesus being baptized so that he could fulfill what was going to happen on the cross, because of what Jesus has done, because of the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, it requires that we respond. It requires that we respond to him, not just through a prayer, Jesus, come into my heart, requires that we can't have a haphazard, distracted response because that doesn't work. Jesus calls us to make him the top priority in our lives, the priority over everything else. See, I look and I see God having the ability to do some amazing things in this room this year. In your life this year. In my life this year. And I believe that God can do those things. I believe that God can transform everything in our lives. And God can transform this church. But you know what it starts with? It starts with whether or not we will let Jesus be our top priority. Or whether we will still continue to pursue our own passions and make them number one. This is for every one of us in here today. Will you allow Jesus to be your top priority? Will you be willing to set aside your career, your family, your hobbies, whatever it is, your sin? Will you be willing to set that aside and say, Jesus, you are my number one. I surrender myself to you. Because I tell you what, if we would all do that, I believe that God would transform this place. I believe that we would experience the kingdom of God right here in our own lives. Would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful for the opportunity to open up your word and begin the study on the book of uh, Gospel of Mark. And God, there's so many things that we're going to pick up and learn from. And God, as we even begin to think about our, our, our upcoming year and God, what you have in store for us, God, I pray that you would be clear in, in what it is that we have to do to see your hand in our lives. That it is all about us surrendering ourselves to you. That it is about making you the top priority. God, I pray for those of us here, God, who are struggling with sin. I pray that today would be the day that they would come forward and say, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to repent before you and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've chosen to love the things that you hate. And today, I'm going to turn from those things. I'm going to set those things aside. I'm going to confess to to my spouse. I'm going to confess to the pastor. I'm going to say, I'm done with these things. And I'm going to seek the freedom that you offer through Jesus Christ. Jesus, through Jesus, all of your sin has been dealt with. You no longer have to be a captive to that sin any longer. If you just repent. 
if you just confess, if you just turn away. Jesus will take that from you. Jesus will give you that freedom. Some of you today, this is your prayer. God, would you just give me freedom from this sin? I confess it before you. God, would you give me that freedom? For some in here today, for some in here today, we know, we know exactly what it is that we need to do. That we need to resolve to trust you with every part of our lives. That when your word says this is how you're supposed to live, that we would not allow Satan to make us doubt who you are, to make us doubt what you have for us, but we would fully submit ourselves to you no matter what it is, no matter how hard it is, no matter the circumstances, that we would be fully surrendered to you. That, That when Jesus says, hey, be a part of the local church body, be a part of the believers, that we would make that commitment regardless of how difficult church can be, regardless of how difficult circumstances can be. Relationships can be messy. But God, because you've said this, we're going to trust you that you will use it for our good and for your glory. And God, for every one of us in here today, I pray that you would speak clearly, that we would make that resolution in our heart, that you would be our top priority. That you would get the priority over our finances. That you would get the priority over our family, over our career. That we would be known for being people that are all about you first and foremost. Those other things are necessary and they're there, but they're not the priority. Jesus is the priority. God, I pray that you would help us to experience your kingdom right here, right now. That you would begin to to make things right in our lives. That you would begin to, to make relationships right around us. That we would experience what it is to have a relationship, a living and a vibrant relationship with you. Jesus, as we take these next couple of songs to respond through you in worship, I pray, God, that each of us would deal with you in our own hearts. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.